It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Eric Murray. Eric, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Hey, man. How are you? Good to be here. I'm going to start off with something that came to me earlier today. And I was curious to know that when you were a kid and you heard the nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat gently <laughs> down the stream, that you just turned around and went, fuck you. No, mate, I was like literally every other kid in New Zealand and you wanted to be an all black, okay? And it's just, it's what you grew up doing. You know, you might play a bit of football or something. I grew up as a kid. It was rugby, it was cricket, you know, summer sports. And I was always into sports, did everything I could. Um, And then in high school, I started figuring that I was actually better at rowing than I was at rugby. So I was like, well, actually, if I want to be like the top in the world or like be the top in New Zealand, maybe I'm not going to do it at rugby. Um, And the rowing sort of led me along that path. And that's basically how you get stuck into it. And then from there, it's just like a journey that you take a shit ton of paths on and, and hopefully you get some rewards at the end of it. Well, we'll get into this, but you have about the most prolific rowing career I've ever even heard of, let alone... (laughs) Like, I've got nothing to compare it to. And I'm curious to know, what's more painful, in your opinion, giving birth oh. or going flat out for two kilometres with a mate? No, it's, it's got shit. No, it's, it's got to be the rain. No, no, no. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely giving birth. I'm not going to go there. Um, yeah, oh, it's a really hard thing to describe, eh? And... Um, when you try and talk to people about like, oh, you know, and, and the best way to describe it is you get people that go to the gym and they jump on the rowing machine. And of course, a lot of people are like, oh, that bloody machine, yeah, it's so bloody hard. And you go, well, imagine doing that at this speed for this time. And people are just like, oh, holy shit, okay. And that's the level of what you've got to go to. And of course, it just, it almost begs belief because you have to train to that point and put you in that position every single day and a lot of people don't realize that rowing for us, even though we won a whole lot of stuff, but every day in training, we were just trying to fail. Like we were trying to lose. We were trying to go out too hard. We were trying to like hold numbers that we couldn't hold or try and keep up with a crew that was way faster than us. And we tried to do that every single day and put the pain on you every single day so that when I get to the Olympics, <laughs> which I sort of hate saying, is the Olympic race wouldn't have even been in the top 10 of our hardest physical races that we've ever had to do. And it should be. It should be your hardest pinnacle. This is it. This is the World Cup rugby final. Everything relies on this one race you've got to do. And it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do in your life. We got to it and we were like, hey, we won the gold. 
I could have probably gone and done another race, you know, but, and that, and that's what we did uh, through all of the different people in our career to get us to that point. So that training was basically harder than competition. And that's where all our pain came every single day. So going right back to your question, at a one-off, oh, mate, childbirth. Because <laughs> you're a dad? Yeah. What are some of the attributes that you are trying to pass on to your next generation? Yeah, to my son. Well, see, Zach, um, Zach's autistic, and so he has a big communication difficulty. So luckily enough, in everything that I've done, um, I'm actually patron for Autism New Zealand, so I, I get to really help out and try and make a difference. So with awesome. The, yeah, so the positions that you get put in uh, because of what we've done and we've won Olympic gold medals of the country and it's historic and all the other bits and pieces is where I was talking before to those kids. You're always giving back and you're always doing something. So for me, Zach being autistic and finding out ways to, for better treatment, um, to better education, all this sort of stuff, you go right at the forefront of it. Um, and I'm just lucky enough that I've got what I've done to be able to help that. So uh, at the moment, we just are out there with him every day, just doing all his education, doing everything to make sure that he has the best pathway in life. Um, and so, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Uh, it's it's awesome to hear, Eric. And and what I suppose what's one been one of the greatest lessons that you've had to learn about having an autistic son. Not that you want to label him with anything, but. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's just it's just a way different way of thinking, and it's it's really amazing because some of the top people in the world, the some of the brightest scientists, um, you know, some of the best businessmen around, all have attributes of autism because of either the singular focus, they just don't like other people, they just are really really bright. You know, take Einstein's and all that sort of stuff. They're the ones that actually can change the world. Um, and so it's really nice to just be able to make sure that you're doing all the education stuff properly um, and giving them the best because some things you you see are just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and the whole idea is just to be able to nourish it and and get them to understand what society thinks we need to understand. Yeah, well, it's, it's a really great initiative. And uh, I still play cricket over here, Eric, for Melbourne University. And we've the president of the club, his wife works with autistic children, and we've been lucky enough and blessed to have some of these amazing scorers that have, they're mm. on the spectrum in some way, shape, or form. They have the most beautiful handwriting, the most amazing attention to detail. <laughs> like, you can have that job because I, ha- like, I get caught up like the squirrel, um, you know, the dog chasing the squirrel and the stuff, and they just nail it. And, like, you just yeah. know it's 100% accurate, you know, so I really love that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I just want to explore a bit more of what you were talking about earlier with regards to this learning to fail because I I feel like we might have glossed over this a little bit and sort of how you ended up with this style of of training. (laughs) Where where did this come from? Yeah, Uh, honestly, um, it's it's your coach, you know, you're coaching the people around you are doing everything possible to get you in a position to, to flourish and give you uh, that position to be the, the person you are. You know, our parents do it as, as, as kids. Um, you know, your CEO and your managers are trying to get you into that position to be really good at business. It happens in all different ways in life. Um, and so for us, um, shit, hang on a sec. I'll just go to check something. Nah, go for it. Back in a sec. Sorry. Oh, okay. That's right. Sorry, just a visitor. 
Sorry, mate. Um, Where do you want to start that one again? No, 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 it's all right. No worries. Just continue on. We'll we'll sort it out. Oh, okay. Um, oh, because you're going to do a cut, eh, if we have to. Do you want to rephrase? Do you want to rephrase the question and just say like, where did we get it from? Yeah, yeah. It was more around. Um, I'll just pay attention to the time. Hang on. So nineteen. Nineteen. Um. So. What I wanted to explore a little bit more, which I feel like we might have just glossed over it a little bit, Eric, yep. was the how you got to uh, to develop this this technique of like failing. Where did this come yep. from? Um, okay, so <laughs> the the ability to fail really came from our coach, um, and so Dick was our coach, and he's a little bit underrated, I think, a little bit just because he was never in the limelight and that sort of stuff. And it's not like the rugby coach was like Steve in bits and pieces. He was the one that really just, um, like he's won, you know, if you look at his, his credentials and the gold medals that he's won, when you buy into his program. And so for us, for Hamish and I, we were coming out of the four um, and, and Dick's there going, Hey, I want to coach you guys in the pair. Your chance and your probability of actually winning goes up. And that's what all these top coaches are. You know, you're like your rugby team gets a coach. You're like, shit, we could win the NRL this year or we could we could win the, the Super Rugby, you know, because they're so good at what they do. So we bought into what Dick was going to tell us to do. And it was horrendous. It was like you were doing Ks that you didn't think you could possibly handle. And then he's putting you up against like a boat that's faster. And he's like on your tail going, keep up, keep up, keep up. And so we're just basically trying to push ourselves to the absolute limit every single day, um, and we were failing. So we'd try and keep up with a uh, like a woman's quad that was faster than us in training, like quite significantly, or the men's double, and we're trying to keep up with them. Um, and if you can do that, you just know that you're going to go into the World Championships and you're going to be so much faster than anybody even before you turn up. And that was the biggest thing that we did is by putting yourself under the pressure all the time, it really leads you on to – what makes people successful is knowing what they can achieve before they go into something. So all the top athletes around the world, and it's and it's definitely Olympic stuff, you pretty much know how you're going to go before you arrive. You know, Valerie will know that she's probably going to get top two because she's won all these competitions before, all this sort of stuff. So for us, all this back work that you do every single day, the, the punishment that you put on yourself gets you to the ability. So when you walk into the big, like for us, the World Champs or a World Cup final, we go, you know what? I pretty, I'm pretty sure we can win this today because we did these pieces the other day that were like just above world record speed. And you go, shit, if anyone else can actually keep up with us, they're probably going to be going really fast. But of course, nobody was just going as fast as what we were. And we just kept pushing that boundary and pushing that limit all the time. Because even though we were winning some of our races by a bloody country mile, Dick would just get into training the next day, like, and hammer us. And it was just like, fuck. And so it wasn't a really pleasant experience. <laughs> but the outcome, but the outcome at the end of it is like you win a gold medal. And I don't know, there's a lot of people that would trade a lot to get that ability to just go under a person and know that shit, if I do what he tells me to do for the next three years, I'm probably going to win an Olympic gold medal. You know, because that was the history. You had Rob winning. You had the Twins win twice. You had Mahe getting bronze. Then you got me and Mahe, you know, so us and Mahe and the, like, women that have come through afterwards. And you go, holy shit, like, this guy can take something and just turn it into it as long as you do what you're told to do. 
um, very old school method of, of teaching, right? But the fact was that that is what has won so many rowing gold medals is because of just that ability to just push people to as hard as they think they can do it. And that is what happened to us. See, I, I think the the overwhelming attitude, certainly living in Australia for the last or well, half my life now, Eric, for nearly 20 years, depending on what code you're talking about, whether it be cricket, AFL, rugby, rugby league over here, there's a lot of injury management stuff that they're doing. So they're quite fearful of uh, pushing yourself to breaking point in, in lots of different areas, which is, I suppose, understandable. But I'm a bit like, I, I like that that theory that you're, that, well, it's not a theory, it's fucking work, right? But it, it's, um, as an ultra runner, which I've only started doing in the last two years, I got an I did an IT band injury on my mm-hmm. first run at at halfway in a hundred k run, and it was uh, the Century Surf Coast over here. It was one of the coldest weekends on history and on record. They had um, about twenty two hundred meters of elevation, and you know, like it was brutal. I had the wrong shoes, and and I I hobbled for fifty kilometers, and I finished it, and then. And I, and I read David Goggins' book and he was talking about, you know, when you, you've still got 40% left when you think you're absolutely done. And I, and I, that was case in point for me. So I love that pushing, that pushing scenario that you're talking about. Yeah, I, it's one thing that I just, and a lot of it's been hindsight and it is looking back and just going like, how the fuck did we actually do it? Because at the time, you're just thinking short-term, long-term, medium, short-term goals. And those goals are get fit, get fast, you know, make the team, um, go to the first World Cup, try and win that, go to the second one. Okay, how do we do it? How many Ks this week? Um, how many weight sessions? How many bikes are we doing? How many ergs? How, how intense are they? So the whole program and what we did is just registered literally in reverse. So we, like, they plan. They don't go, oh, we'll do this this month, like working up. They go, right, here's race day, seven days out. 10 days out, 21 days out, and it's all calculated. It's amazing how, like, the programs, big sporting environments for the people that are actually winning, like, because there's a lot of public money invested in it at the same time, right? So all of these people are justifying what they're doing and all the money that's coming in, but it actually is turning sport, and this is why it's so high performance into what it is today, because you've got so much resource going into it and so many people with so many expertise to basically use us, I love using the word, as like a lab rat because they go, we're going to push Eric to this limit. We're going to set him this training program and we're going to see if he can break it because if you take a really good athlete and you're trying to do it. So sometimes, and that's, this is so outside the box, but when you take the Rocky movie, Rocky Five, I know, which one's Rocky with Dolph? It's Rocky, the first one, right? And he's fighting him. I think so. No, Rocky Five. You tested my memory now. This is early 80s. (laughs) Okay, so the whole whole thing, though, is that he's a machine that gets put on by the German government to bloody fight, and Rocky's this huge legend, and he's going to fight him. He's going to break him because he's trained so much harder than anyone else. That was basically – that's what sport is at high performance level. And and a lot of people don't – when you buy into it, you don't really see that when to be the best in the world – You've got to knock off everybody else that's below you to make sure that you're at the top, okay? You knock off a lot of people on the way. And so those people come out with a negative attitude towards like how it works and different bits and pieces. So there's a whole lot that comes with it. But 
you are just trying to get to the point and you just got to do everything that all of these people tell you to do. And in the end of it, you get the Kathy Freemans, you get the Robert Dells, you get um, the Usain Bolts and all of this because that's just as hard as you can push a human being in that sport, that position, and they're going to come out at the end of it with something bloody special and a, and a bloody gold medal. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to know what are some of the unexpected benefits of being a such a prolific champion in the sport of rowing, like outside of the recognition in the streets. What's some of the? And I'm not talking about having your your, your happy meal upgraded at McDonald's. What are some? Of, what's some of the good stuff? Oh, it's as I said before. It's you've got to be able to give back, and you've got to be able to help out. Um, and so, like, I do like talking to other athletes and, and just give them some advice because I learned so much along the way of, of how we did things and what worked and what didn't. And then ultimately to be, you know, because a lot of people don't see that I was in the team for like six, seven years before anything comes. You know, your development, you're not even making the elite, you're on a list. And it takes you that long to get actually in the world and start winning medals. So, it's this whole process getting through there is just, um, it's really amazing to actually think about how long it actually takes for you to get into that position. But so, you know, yeah, with all of that, um, you know, once you, once you are successful, if you can help the other young athletes out do it quicker, um, it's really good. You know, you talk to schools because everybody knows the Olympic programs, bits and pieces. Um, But, and as a matter of fact, you know, you're just going to try, and do as much as you can for the people that have supported you along the way. Um, and you have done something pretty special, you know, and people know who you are. They know what you've done. Um, and so if you can use that to, for different events, different fundraising things, as I say, we're with a couple of charities some trusts, um, you lo- we all love to see success, you know, and if you can help someone else be successful, then there's always that little part of you that's going to be like, you know what, I helped them do that. Um, and that's what happens with coaches. That's what happens with all of the support staff around it because they know they've had that little piece in winning that medal. It wasn't just the person that went out and did it. It's actually quite a big group of people. And then that falls down to the people that watch it. They loved it. They see the memories. It does become part of sporting history. Um, and it's just part of our life. It's part of our culture. You know, it's part of 82, you know, uh, and then like Rugby World Cup 86, you know, and you just go through all the stuff. And everybody remembers the Munich 8, you know, like all the different bits and pieces, all the sporting histories that have happened in the world, you know, when Team New Zealand won the first America's Cup, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's really big parts of history. And you actually become one of those. And you've got to, you've got to know that if you do become successful, then that's just what happens. Um, and if you don't want that, then don't be successful. <laughs> so it does, it, and it actually does, you know, and it really does. It's like famous people. They go, oh man, I'd love to be rich and famous. And then they're whinging when you've got a camera in your face and you go, you knew what was going to happen before you went in there. You know, if you become the all black captain, everyone's going to want to talk to you. If you don't want that to happen, don't be the all black captain. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, but it is. And it's just the way that you have to accept going into it, that what you're actually trying to achieve is something that hardly anyone's ever done before. Um, uh, very few people get the opportunity at, but there's a lot of people that would love to see it happen. Um, and that's what we feel like. That's what I feel really privileged about at the same time. Well, I want to explore the genesis because behind some of these extraordinary athletes and coaches that I've been so privileged to have on the show, we had Sir Steve Hansen came on. We had Justin Langer, who's the current Australian cricket coach. 
had Ryan Harris, the the Australian fast bowler, Chris Rogers, all have experienced, you know, certain um, amazing stuff in their life. We had uh, Gavin Larson come on as well, which was a real thrill, you know, to try and balance it out. But what about where did you get this this drive? Like what was childhood like for you and where did you get this from? Oh, I don't know. I was just a kid that, you know, when you grow up in the late 80s, early 90s, it was just sport. You know, mum and dad, you know, dad probably shouldn't he might have still played rugby when I was first born. You know, it's just, it's what they did. And it was just part of the sport. And then um, ultimately, yeah, from that, um, I was just always as a kid, just playing sport, just was fully energetic. Um, we lived in Bombay and my parents said I was always on my bike and I was just every afternoon, there was no sit down, watch TV. It was like, right, go get on your bike and ride around and just like, and do stuff, make some jumps and go outside. Uh, and then basically, I think from all of that, I just love the competition of it. Uh, and then, as you say, you just walk through the process of just growing up, still continuing to play and then just actually wanting to be the best at it. Um, and that's really just where the drive comes from, is just trying to be the best all the time. And that's that's where it starts. It's it's seems like an accidental blessing, I think, Eric. Because a lot of people, I this is a question I ask a lot of my guests, and not like it usually comes from a pivotal moment, like an inspirational parent or a you know a mentor. Um, you know, we had Pat Scammell on, who's an Australian middle distance runner. He never won a medal at the Olympics, um, but he set the record in Australia, in Australia, at least for the most amount of sub four minute miles. It's like 18 of them. I don't know if you've ever tried to run that fast, um, but it's pretty brutal. I know you've okay. rode that fast. Yeah, <laughs> which man. Is, which crazy. Is unbelievable. Um, and so it's just, it's really interesting. And and maybe it's just a case where you just grew up in, in the right place at the right so- time. Yeah, and and the one thing with rowing in New Zealand as well is it it wasn't wasn't it was there. There was a lot of people sort of still doing it, and there was a community of people that did it. Um, and you just had to get someone in the club because that was you know the old sporting club. They used to be really big. They used to have a lot of people. Um, and then of course it just started weanering down, and then all of a sudden someone at the school will just like ignite the club, and then all of a sudden. There's just people like inviting you to come and do it and you just try it and then you just go from there. So um, I was trying to be good at rugby at school and I was trying to be in the first, you know, cricket team. And so as a kid, you're trying to make all of these teams and you just keep trying to be the best. And then you find a sport that you're actually really good at and you're still trying to be the best all the time. So, you know, it took us a couple of years. But when you actually start winning races, you go, man, this is actually really good, you know, because this is what I've been doing all the work for. And you win the races and it's it's a buzz. It's a real massive buzz. And then you go, shit, I want to do that again and I want to go faster and maybe I could do that on a national level. And then you commit yourself to try and be in a team that's going to win the national champs and then now you're a national champion. And so you're the best in the country, you know. And so it just keeps steamrolling into this ability for always that betterment to try and be uh, get more accolades, to win more, to get to the absolute top that you can because everybody's trying to do it. Usain Bolt is trying to run the fastest time in the world, and all the other guys are trying to do it. Every other runner, every other swimmer, you get to a point where you're like, am I just going to stop at winning it, or am I actually going to leave my mark, and when we leave the sport, people are going to remember what we did. 
But you only get to that point because you just keep ticking all the boxes. You go, okay, we've won this race. We've won the world champs. Cool. We've won the Olympics. Cool. What else can we do? You know, and so you start ticking more boxes, but getting up every day and punishing yourself doesn't start looking very attractive when you're like, oh, I'm just going to fucking go do what I did last year. Even though it's amazing to win the world championships, don't don't take me that. But what are you searching for? Like just to tick up some more numbers or should you like, you've won everything you possibly can. What do you want to do from, from here? So when we were competing, the fact that we actually had this unbeaten streak that was sort of following us for our first four years and then carried on and became like the longest running one, I think in 2013, all of a sudden you're thinking, man, imagine if we could win for another three years. Holy shit. And so all of a sudden, your motivation becomes, we're going to do this cycle because nobody's ever done two Olympic cycles unbeaten. You know, nobody's, and many, very many people can win one Olympics and go back the following Olympics and do it. So all of these motivating factors just came in and it just really, it just drove us every single day to be the better person you can. And it does, it just, it, I found it kept growing. It wasn't one pivotal point that actually said to me, man, I just want to be like that guy. It was just this culmination of trying to be better and trying to, whatever you do, try and be the best at it. And how do you work to that? Because it doesn't happen overnight. This time, you know, where can I go from here? And it just, it puts you in the position that we got to. It's almost like completing levels on a on a computer game, Eric, yep. isn't it? Like it's that, that, that one more level kind of thing. I, I haven't really had it explained in this format before it's really interesting getting this take and it's kind of like this this well, addiction when, when the one thing it is an addiction and this is this is a funny part because when you actually do really analyze it and i thought about it a lot because <laughs> you know it, it's so fascinating and i would have loved to have done like psychology i'd love to do psychology um because when you actually start diving into it and and why you're actually motivated and to get up and do it every day when like you've already done what you've done. So even you take a rugby team and they go, okay, I'm in the Super 15 team. We've won a couple of titles. I'm in the All Blacks. Now what are you doing? Are you just playing for the next game or are you playing for like a legacy or are you doing like what? what's the what's the motivation? Like, okay, you're getting up and you're getting paid some good money, but everything's a finite time at the same time. So you've got to start looking at that at the same time with what we were doing in rowing and go, well, is that another motivating factor? Is it to see how long you can carry it out? Um, or are you better off now to cut your loss or to leave on top and then work into your business or whatever you were doing outside of it and get a step out? Because the whole finishing of sport and going into jobs, we know there is a big issue. And it's very easy for successful people, but people that aren't quite so successful or have dedicated their life for it, it can be a bit rough. Um, and so those are the questions that you're always putting on yourself when you just commit to do it. It sounds like you've, you've done a lot of work around goal setting. Was that off your own back or was it something that was taught to you at a young age? Uh, a little bit at a young age. Like the goal setting side, it really starts getting taught for you though, okay? So this will sound sort of pretty dumb, but when when <laughs> – you're wanting to win, okay? And so you're wanting to, you're going, this is, this is. I'm going to work backwards from Olympic Games or World Championships, and I'm going to work back to when we have one race, the next race, the next race, the next race. So you break it down just like the physiologists break down our training program. And you go, okay, I've got to be in a good space here, and I've got to be in a good space here, and I've got to be going this fast to get to here, and so you do all of that sort of stuff. And so that's in your head at the same time. But 
also the physiologists are feeding it to you to get you to that position because subconsciously you know it needs to happen, but it's not something that you've got to think about all the time because everything's getting put in place for you to actually be at that point because they do all the prep, they do all the training, they just push you as an athlete so that you get to that world championships and you win. And so that's where the goals come in, that a lot of it is really pushed right back to the daily pacing, uh, just that internal competition that you get there to try and be as good as you can be every day because the long-term goals take care of themselves. So when you talk about like, you know, everyone does talk about the short-term, mid-term, long-term goal and and they talk about short-term. I really have looked at it over my time and realized that a short-term goal should actually be every single day. So your short-term goal, you go out there today and you go, right, we're pacing off another crew. Our goal is to fucking beat them. We want to get back to the dock before they do. And if we do any pieces against each other, we're going to be winning every single one of them. Okay? So our short-term goal was every single day. So whatever training that you got put in front of you, your goal was to either complete it or do better than what they expected of you. And that's what happens with every single athlete around the world, whether it's like rugby, netball, NFL, shit, they'd be brutal. If you just one day where you weren't on form, bang, you're cut. Do you know what I mean? And this is the cutthroat thing about sport. And we just get put in that position. But when you just go to do it, every single day is your goal. Every single day is to try and be better than you were the last day. All the other stuff takes care of themselves because you don't wake up one morning and go, oh, man, yeah, I've got 10, what have I got? 1,120 days to the next Olympics. Yes, I can't (laughs) wait. Like You can't get motivated for that, but you can get motivated for what you're about to do right now, this morning, so that you can finish the session. Do it If you do it really well, you walk away going, yeah, man, ah, we're on track. Or you don't do it, and you've got to start thinking about what's going to make you go better. So that's your short-term goal every single day. And so that's all we thought about was whatever was put in front of us for that session or that day was to was put there as a test and we had to make sure we could either complete it or better it better than what we were expected to do. And that's basically what training as an elite athlete is about. Well, I, I, I'm grateful for this insight, Eric. The closest <laughs> I ever got to greatness was uh, in, third, in the third 15 at Christchurch Boys High, which I think I probably would have played second or maybe a first 15 at a smaller school. But I played outside Scott Hamilton. Who mm-hmm. who then became an All Black, and there it is. And, and it's one of my favourite stories. To, and I was talking to Steve Hansen about this as well, and and he was a big fan of Bubble, and uh, he just he just decided, you know, like you're saying that this is what he was going to do, and t- for him to progress from third fifteen rugby at Boys Up, like amazing story, amazing yeah. story. And uh, but I suppose the thing that I'm curious to know, Eric, is that now that you've you've dominated the sport and you've dominated the Olympics. Do you, do you find it harder now to be inspired by either non-rowing elite athletes? Oh, no, we were, I've always been inspired by, um, by any other athlete. Um, and, and you just get a, Oh, geez. Not to be honest. No, not really. Because I like anyone at the top of the game, 
you know, you see them on TV and you watch what they're doing and you're like, man, they're doing so well. You know, shit, they're excellent at what they do, their job, right? To be the best sports person they can be. And I know the effort that I put in to be the best at the Olympics and rowing in the men's pair. Now, in their sport, they have a number that's like astronomically more than what we had in rowing. So, of course, for them to be like for us to make, you know, if you do it in percentages, you work out the percentage to be an Olympic rower, and it's not huge because there's only a few million rowers around the world, you know, and then there's only a few thousand in New Zealand, you know, what you do all the numbers. Whereas you take like the basketballers or the footballers, and there's like two, three billion people that can actually do it. And you go, man, for you to be the best, you've got to be like doing everything exactly perfect. Like you've probably gone even harder than I have to get to where you were, to be the best football player in the world. Like how hard have you had to work to do it? Now, I know that the money incentive on that side is massive as well, but they are still the best people in the world. And this is why... (laughs) When you get into sport and like somebody that we used to watch on and like I'm sure every sports person probably has mentioned it at some stage is the whole Lance Armstrong thing. You know, like I, I've watched the documentaries and stuff like that. And I'm just like, damn it. You know, like we all because at the time you were just like, man, this guy's a beast. Nah, there's no way he's on drugs. There's all this. And, and we were athletes like going to the Olympics and you're watching, them, you know, early 2000s and stuff racing the Tour de France, the biggest sporting event in the world, you know, and you're just like, far out, this guy's amazing. And then, of course, okay, bubble gets burst. But, but, he was still the best athlete in a doped-up sport. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But to be the best cyclist in the world is unbelievably hard. It is the most, like, it is so brutal to get to be that person that can win the Tour de France. You've got to be the best in the team. You've got to be the best in like thousands and thousands of riders around the world that try and make it to the top. And it's, but it's their sport. They're trying to do it. They're trying to be the best in the world and they just give their whole lives to it. And they just knuckle down and do exactly what they have to, to be the best in the world. Which is why, uh, which is why I think it, it would be better if none of them were on drugs. Like, you know, oh. I mean? like it would even itself out. And, and it's I because I, I was I was I must admit I was Eric I never I was never a big fan of Lance Armstrong like I remember the hoo ha but then I remember when the drugs came out and I was like that motherfucker like because I'm a clean athlete yeah and uh, not that I'm competing with any but like for my own you know moral fiber yeah um, I think I re- I think Hamish took it hard eh because. He's such a cyclist fan. He was always in like cycling hard. But it would also be interesting to hear from like a, a, a passionate cycling person's point of view about when the bubble burst, you know, and how they felt. Because they would have been like, man, I ride every Sunday and I race in these races. And then literally the best person in the world has just turned out to be a fraud. And you're like, fuck, that makes our sport look like shit. You know what I mean? And so yeah, yeah. it'd be interested to see the passionate person that was in the pro, like there, how they actually felt about it. Well, the cycle, I'm not sure how they how they received in New Zealand, Eric. But like in Australia, cyclists, particularly in Melbourne, are disliked. I, I personally, I, I I have done some cycling, so I, I have no issue with them. But like car drivers, <laughs> fucking hate them. <laughs> like, oh, wow. like, see, your sport was shit. You know, you and your mate Lance was a cheating motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, man, crazy. I'd love to know, Eric, if you've ever had any 
really shitty moments in your life where when you're going to hand it all in or just shit got too big surely it happened okay um hold that thought i'm just going to take a leak and then i'll be back is that right (laughs) yeah mate there it is all good no worries no worries no yeah there we go so um so i'd love to know eric what about your rock bottom? Have you had one? Um, nah, so only a couple. The rock bottoms really are only um, uh, like when you're in the train, like when you, when you don't get to where you feel like you should be good enough, um, you just start to think, shit, am I actually going to be able to get there? So we had a couple of like 2006 we had a we were we won a World Cup medal, and so we were like, okay, actually we're not going too bad. Um, and then we had the screwed up semi final where we didn't even. The problem is we thought we were good enough to be in the final, and we were too busy thinking about what's going to happen in the final, you know. So we we were good enough to be there, but then we got this really hard semi final race, and we missed out on the final. And it was this stupid dead heat, and we had to re race the race. And so you finish it, and you go, man, I've done all this training for the last few years, and I've gone from getting uh, like fifth at the Olympics, then fifth at the world champs. And now you're getting like ninth and you go, is this really worth it? You know, and the funding's like not basically keeping you above water and all this other bits and pieces. So it starts getting really difficult on how you're going to be able to continue doing it. Um, And so that was probably one of the ones I knew that I changed some things when we came back. I didn't like how the program was running. And there was a group of us just went back with a bit more renewed energy to train slightly differently. Um, and then we got back into the team, won the world champs. And then in 2008, we went on to the Olympics and we got fourth in our semi-final. We're in the final. So you've worked all these four years and you're just sitting there on the finish line going, fuck. Like, and you're just emotional wreck. You're just like, this sucks, balls. And then you've got to go out <laughs> and race a B final the next day for ranking and you're just like oh my god and so that's really hard that 24 hours is fucking brutal in your mind because like you all you want to do is go buy the box of beers get on the you know like just drown your sorrows because you've just worked for this four-year period and it's all gone like there's no possibility of you getting it and you're just like man all the shit I've done, living on your bones, your ass, doing all this stuff to get to that point. And you go, ah, I'm out. You know, like literally I can't keep doing it, you know, because you just can't keep doing it. Um, And so there's only so far that like your partners and stuff can take where you're the one doing all your shit and their money is basically paying you to do your sport. And so it's a really, really tough place to be. And so, of course, you're not just pulling the pin for yourself. You could be pulling the pin because you're married or you've got kids and all this sort of stuff. But there does come that point in time. Um, but the opportunity, I took time and I stepped away and I evaluated all the stuff and I was ready to just go, you know what, I don't. I just want to have a break. It might be a year. I don't think I've finished, but whatever. And then it was literally Hamish coming to me like just after Christmas going, you want to go, you want to have a nudge at the pier? And I went, fuck, what an amazing opportunity. And so then your whole plans change again. And it was like, right. <laughs> I'm right into this world again, getting knuckled down. And you're basically, because what you don't realize is that 
you're not just signing up for the next nine months of training. You're signing up for four years. You don't just sign up to go to the next world champs. When you go into it, you go, I'm on a four-year mission, and this is what's going to happen in this four years. My life's going to be here. I'm going to be training six days a week. I'm going to be going overseas this time and this time. Everyone else works around me, and I'm just going to try and get to that point. Um, and so it's just trying to pick yourself up out of those. Um, I was just lucky that I had – because, like, if Hamish and I never had got on the pair together – you know, it was just an opportunity that at the time was just phenomenal to get hold of. And we knew we were both good at what we were doing. And so when you put that together, all of a sudden, you've got the two people that think they're the fastest, they work the hardest, um, they do the best numbers, and you put them together. And all of a sudden, you've got something that's going to work. And we just worked. And it just created like this amazing streak. And like, all the stupid victories and the times and every single record that we ever set was just because both of us, what we were talking about before about you as a person trying to be the best every single day and trying to grow up from that. You get two people that collide like this in a partnership, bang. And that's it. You know, you just get this phenomenal group of people. And that was what Hamish and I were. And we just did something that was like far beyond words. And then you two, Best mates as a result of this? <laughs> so you could do this in two questions, okay? Um, and I'll do them for you. Did you guys ever have an argument? <laughs> okay. Now, people, so we you got to remember, we lived together. When we went overseas, there was no hotels, you know, galore, and everyone's got their own suite and shit. We were in single, like, rooms, tiny room slightly apart, living together in a training camp environment for three months, okay? And then we'd come back and we were sweating on each other, rowing on each other for like five, six hours a day, okay? Never, ever, never had an argument. Never, ever had an argument. We had a couple of times where I thought Hamish was being a little bit too far and I was like, come on, man, just fuck, you know, like, but we never had an argument, okay? And there were two, there's a couple of things around that because what I said before about both of us trying to be the best, we, that's what we did every day against one another. And so all of a sudden, you just get the respect from one another that, hey, we sit on the row machine next to everyone else in the program. Hamish and I are number one and two, and everyone else is down here. You know, so all of a sudden, he just knows that we're clear from everybody else. He's got the best people we can work with. So me and Hamish are together, and it's just going to go into this thing that goes. Um, I'm completely different than Hamish. Like, we are chalk and cheese. And so the basic thing about it was that I'm really good friends with Hamish, and I trusted him with fucking doing everything he possibly could. Um, and, and that's what was created. Would I say we're mates? It's a different fine line because what we did was that we didn't live in each other's pockets. So if you were living together, oh, let's go to the pub, let's go to a cafe and all this sort of stuff. If stuff had started going like this, all of a sudden, the person that you're socializing with, uh, doing everything, um, if the boat starts going really badly, all of a sudden, like, man, you can get a lot of tension and just partnerships will just erupt and be gone. So we made sure it was very sort of strictly professional. Like we still socialized on occasions, but it was like I had my life, Hamish had his life, and we just, as soon as we left training, we left everything, all the sweat on the floor, 
and then we were out. And then we'd come back together and we'd both work with that one goal going forward. So we never, ever had to question one another's trust. Like Hamish never had to question my ethics. I never had to do the same to Hamish because he knew whatever was put in front of us, I'd do. And I knew whatever Hamish got, uh, he'd do. And so there was just no trust issues at all. And so when we raced or when we went as hard as we possibly could, all of a sudden, we're just winning. And it's just because I'm giving my best. He's giving my best. You've taken two people who think they're amazing, put them together. Now you've got something that actually is going to go really fast. And that's really the combination and the way that we started and the way that we kept it all the way through. So 100% respect for Hamish. He's he's 100% a friend. Um, but we just, I think, living not in that whole really tight social mate circle um, probably made it really good so that we could just do our job. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a really interesting dynamic. It's kind of, kind of like reminds me of Torval and Dean almost, mm. um, and it, and it makes me think of that incident that happened with the Australian women's uh, four. I think the do you remember when one of the girls just laid oh, down? Lay down Sally. Lay down Sally. Two thousand and four. Do you know what what happened? There? <laughs> yeah. So. This is a um, anyone that remembers it, 2004 Athens. Um, she just stopped rowing with like about 100 meters to go. Uh, it's uh, mind blowing. And like, it is uh, like um, she had done it before. And so, this is the problem that as a sports person, people saw it and went, oh, this poor girl, she just literally like ran out of gas. She tied up like a racehorse and, you know, the poor girl, oh, you know, look at her. And then anyone that's an athlete goes, ah, she's done it before. She was going to do it again. And, of course, and you're just like, shit. Like, and, of course, if you're in a program where the coach is like, oh, we're going to keep putting Sally in, and you keep turning around going, fuck, if we're in a race today, is she going to lay down? Is she going to stop? And she'll just, like, take the pressure off. And it's just like, you've got to get those people out. But, of course, the coach won't get them out. The because if she does testing, she could probably still win. And you're like, oh, man. Like, And so as an athlete, you're trying to win an Olympic gold medal <laughs> and you've got this person that you can't even trust and you have to do it with them. Like, oh, my God, I don't know how the hell anyone would be able to do that because you just know that if they're – like, it's no different than with just normal sports or business, anything like that. People that just continuously turn up late or – they just leave early all the time. Then they're, they're not there. Like they don't. And it's the same in sport. This just goes to like an nth degree where you're just like, man, this is going to be like detriment. We could be in the Olympic final and this happens. And guess what happens? Like, oh, it's a shocker. It's a massive shocker. I, I, I be, I'm going to do some more investigating after this to find out um, what her life has been like since that because it, I, I think it would be really hard to come back from that. She she tried to keep rowing, eh? Oh, I know, I know, and I just feel for her because, man, I would be. It's something that you know, like <laughs> when when <laughs> you all the historical victories, you know, like the Kathy Freeman running the four hundred, you know, Michael Johnson's or the Usain Bolt, you know, all the things that you've seen in history. There's all those obscure ones where, oh, that's right, that fucking happened. And of course, you're forever etched. It's like, um, what's the guy, Stephen? Is it Stephen? Someone, the Bradbury. guy in the ice, the ice skating. Stephen okay. Bradbury, yeah. He is remembered for that race. Okay, it's still he won, but it would never have been that massive if it hadn't for been the circumstances that it happened. 
So, of course, this poor girl in the rowing, she's gone down in history as the, oh, the rowing girl that laid down. And it's like, man, what does that do to your head? You know, like it's it's a, oh, oh it's a hard place to be, man. What, well, what is the natural thing to do if you are overcooked in rowing? Like, what have you, do you vomit? Do you pass out? Like, what no, happens? but this is this is where your training goes. So even if you are at absolute max, you should still be able to keep everything going. Okay. And if and the one thing with it as well is that you know where the limits are. So when things like that happen, you just crack. Because I know how hard I could go. I know if we were just doing repeat pieces, how hard you could go. And you would go until you literally just were like, I can't do it. And and you were like, I'm I'm a hundred percent gassed. And you'd give it everything you possibly could. And because that's just what you did, you never quit. But of course, there are people around that just, when the going gets tough, they'll just back off slightly, you know, and it just, and that's what happens. But um, to go further than that, it's just something's hit and you've just gone, oh, oh, yeah, it's, it just doesn't really make sense. Like as an elite athlete, if you're quitting on different races and stuff like that, you're just not well enough to prepare. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like you look at some of the examples in sport where people, uh, like in cricket, like they've got a um, – who was the new, the black cap in the last couple of years who was batting on with a broken arm or a broken hand, like facing bounces oh, and shit? Like, like it's just – and that's and that's just – you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't pull out unless you're on your deathbed uh, no. just because you don't want to let people down. You I know. know. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. Sports are funny one, eh? Um, you know, and and there's so many different things that have happened, and that's why, like, I've, as I say, I, I got into sport because I loved it, you know, and I still watch a lot of stuff and and really enjoy it. I love playing golf, man. I love golf, um, and and it's just really enjoyable. And so, no different. The the things that I do now, though, is that I take into account that I'm a pretty shit golfer. I'm not bad, but the fact is that I've come from being like absolute the top of the pops and now you come back into a sport and everyone's like, Oh, you're going to be the best. And you've got to be like, no, no, I know my, like I know how good I am right now and I'm not that good. And so I can really accept it and go for it. Um, Because what I learned with my sport is I knew what I was capable of achieving and then I could just go out and do it. So you turn up on the Olympic final and you know that you can race a certain time because you've done it a week prior. Um, A lot of people that turn up to like these big events Generally, if they go, oh, I'm not sure how it's going to go, they probably haven't, they don't know how fast they're going. Or if they do, it's not as fast as it needs to be. And that's the biggest thing that we knew with all our races going into them. We like, I could tell you all the really close races we had because we hadn't prepared well going into them. You know, we either had injuries or, um, you know, Bondi used to get stress fractures. There was one World Cup that we won and I was watching it the other day. And we only won by like less than a second. And I was just like, oh, that's right. We'd only rode for like three days before the race. Um, we'd given the guys a bit of a hiding, you know, like four weeks prior. But the fact was next, all of a sudden, they're like right beside us. And I'm like, I don't think we can go any faster. You know, like this is where we're at. And shit, if we win this, we'll be doing really well. But I knew that that was all we were capable of doing that right then because of the preparation that we had put in. Um, and that's basically just the way that sport works. And if you can do that properly, no matter what sport you're doing, you're always going to probably be the people that win. Do you use the same philosophy for life in general, Eric? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, because as long as you're in the position that you want to be or working towards what you're trying to do, you've got the the vision and you've got to where you want to go. Um, and if you start doing goal settings, I find that I'm probably doing more now than I was doing in terms of rowing. So, you know, now I'm just like I've renovated a property in, in town as well as like doing all my business stuff and everything else. And I'm like, I really enjoy that. Like maybe I'll do another one, you know. And so that sort of becomes your hobby and you start looking at that. And then you're like, man, I'd love to do this. And and I'm doing stuff with Zach. So I'm like, okay, well, what are you going to do with him? So your life starts revolving around that rather than revolving around like what you used to do with the sport. But you use the same philosophies moving forward to just put everything into everything you're doing and always have the great outlook on if you take that path and that's where you dive into, no matter what it is in life, if you dive into that, you just have to accept the outcome. Um, you know, And if it works for you, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. The path's just going to go on a different direction. Um, and that was basically what I do now. So if you just dive into something, yeah, well, I'm going to have fun doing this. I'm going to get to it because that's what I did for so many years with rowing is I just dived my whole life into it. But I had a, I loved every moment of like the camaraderie and all the bits and pieces and the journey to get to that point because that's what I – like I enjoyed it. It was hard. But when I look back on it, I flourished. Like I loved it. You know, when you could beat your targets and stuff like that, you actually look back on it. And even though you're just – you're always hammered and you're just so tired, when you look back on it, you were just like, you know what, I can look back at Eric Murray five years ago and be proud of what he did every single day. And the way that he went out about it and just went as hard as he could to get to that point and get to that point. So this is basically what you've got to do in life. Like if you're just working with your kids, just go 100% with them and just do everything you can to make that happen. Or if you're trying to be better in another sport or if you're trying to lose weight or if you're trying to quit smoking or anything like that, you just got to dive into it and just commit to it and just really get stuck in behind it. Um, and it's the only way that you can do it is unless like your life starts revolving around that particular thing, you're just not going to be able to give it as much as you want. And this is why you hear a lot of people just going, I just feel sort of headless because I'm doing half-assed things everywhere and they're not really enjoying doing any of it. It just becomes part of their life. Whereas they could be like, I'll quit these three things that I'm doing, just do one thing and then just really enjoy doing that is, you know, whether shit you go biking in the weekends or you play social netball or you do whatever it is you play golf um that's what you do and that's what you do for fun and that's what you do for your mental break from your job from your relationships whatever it might be that's what keeps you healthy and i think a lot of people just don't have that you know they don't have like what where am i going to go where am i going to take this you know should I renovate my house and try and add a hundred grand and then do it again and do it again and do it again, you know, or am I going to have my kids or am I going to start up a small business? Am I going to look at doing something? Um, you know, these are the types of things, or if, even if you're like, you know what, I've made good money in business. You know, I came straight out of a school as an accountant or lawyer, made heaps of money. And now you're just sitting there going, you know, but I hate living in fucking Auckland. It sucks. <laughs> um, no, but then you go, you know, why don't I can still work as a lawyer two days a week from home and go live in Raglan or, go down and live in Queenstown or somewhere like that. And so those are the types of things you just got to make the decisions. And if that's the way that you go, you just accept what happens. But if it makes you feel better, if it makes you healthy, um, you just have to do it. Um, and that's just part of life. It's just fully part of life and it's fully what we do. Well, your, your energy is infectious. It really is. And, and even before we had an opportunity to speak, like in, in going over some of the old footage, 
from your races. I this morning I went and ran a half marathon distance um, because of like the I was like fuck you know this guy's a badass I'm gonna have to pull my socks up here <laughs> and it's not like I haven't run that far before but it was like I haven't run that distance for about six months and um, and I and I and I feel awesome as a result you know mm. like and so so I'm, for that I'm really grateful. One thing I'd love to know I, I know someone watching this right now is having a tough, tough time of it. And I'd love to know your thoughts on what they could do right now to improve their own situation. Oh, man, it's I, I sort of hate commenting on it because um, I the biggest thing around when you think about it is you only know what like having a bad time is in somebody's life if you actually had it happen to you before. Do you know what I mean? So like people could have just lost their job. You know, they might have just separated from their wife or whatever. And the kids, you know, they're going through custody battles. They're like gone on to the jobs, you know, and all of this. And you're just like, shit, like, man, what what are you doing? You're, you're applying for jobs. Nothing's happening, whatever. Like I've never been in that situation. And so I don't know really what to, to I, if I could give anything that would say like just snap out of it or whatever, because it doesn't, it's not like that. But if I if I could get anywhere near that, it's just like, okay, where do I go to get out of this? And even if you don't have a job, it's like, okay, could I actually becoming really fit? Could I actually change my habits? Okay, there's no more takeaways. There's no more shit food. I'm actually going to get on the internet and I'm going to start cooking fresh fruit and veggies every day because it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be good for us. We'll change our lifestyle. We're going to feel better. I'm going to sleep better. Um, whatever and then that could lead you into something else and then the next thing and then the next thing but it's just putting those little things in front of you and just saying well maybe i just do it a lot of those things doesn't cost you any money to do it but it's just a different change in lifestyle that you might need okay and it's just the only way to do it so the like with me um you know when you leave rowing you've you know there's something to go out to afterwards some people don't and that's where the whole mental health side goes away especially with a lot of elite athletes. But if you move outside of it and you realize that you're not going to be living to that level of stress and anxiety under like performing every single day, and you just got to bring that back into a focus of working in an environment with other people, you already know how to do it. Um, you, you can just elevate and just take all of that sort of stress and anxiety away from you from that. Um, and that's the thing you just got to work towards is going, it's not a huge change, just little things in my life that might make it actually better um, and ultimately can make you happier because you can't do huge changes in one go. Um, you just got to keep working on little things to just see where you can get out of it. But you just got to keep working on it. And it's like, as I say, the pathway that it's going to take you, it could be quite short. It could be long. Um, you just have to accept that it could be a three or four year journey out of it, you know, um, no different than the Olympics. It's a four-year journey. You don't get there. You can't just turn up a couple of months before and go, hey, I'd love to win the Olympics now. <laughs> um, you know, I know that that getting in hard times is quite negative, but that's the thing with the Olympics. You know, even sporting stuff, it is really negative on people. Um, and you just have to turn what you were doing into another another direction and just move that way. Yeah, I think... I'd, I'd be careful not to diminish your own experiences, Eric. It's, it's I understand the where you're coming from. I think there's a lot of really sage advice in there, and I think you know if someone asked me a similar question, it would be to to avoid taking a victim mentality. 
to anything. Mm. Just little things that that you know, because of this amazing bubble that you've been in, you probably it, this is a this is a no brainer for you. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a victim. You know, I'd take ownership of what's happened, and I think that's the kind of stuff that that a lot of people are really struggling with. They feel like the world's against them from a lot of the stuff that I've seen. And I used to be like that before I got my yeah. shit sorted until I took ownership for what had happened to me and, and used it as my fuel and my superpower. So I, yeah. it's sort of two different angles we're coming from here, but we end up in the same place, I think, which is really great. And, uh, and again, like you, you just, the energy that you bring is infectious. And I think, it'll have an impact on people watching this, you know, whatever your trial or tribulation that, that you're going through. Yeah, no, no. And it, and it is, um, you know, I, you only ever wish the best for people. Um, you know, I've come from, uh, I've learned a lot of respect in my time and in a part of like with being an athlete is that you have to respect everybody that's turning up to doing, to race you because they're not just there to make up numbers. They're trying to be you from somewhere else around the world. They're trying to be the fastest in the world. And it's just someone on a different continent doing the same sport out of the 7 billion people floating around on this bloody piece of, piece of uh, uh, space rock in the universe. It's me, you know, and, and you sort of go down into it and you're just like, you know, but it all fits in the big piece of puzzle, um, you know, and it is. It's just a, a matter of putting your piece where it's going to be um, and just taking that where you can. And so, yeah, I, I've always just tried to have a positive outlook on life and if things haven't even gone my way or you miss out on something or you don't have enough money for this or you lose your job for that, you just got to keep getting back up and just keep moving forward um, and just keep looking into the long term and know that things don't just happen overnight. They're just, they're just a progression getting you further forward and, and seeing where it can take you. Did you have any moments with Zach where you were angry at the world for, for this autistic diagnosis oh mate you can go through so many different emotions but um in the end you've got a beautiful healthy kid who is just slightly a little bit different and that's different in society's terms so um no you know you just go whatever happens happens um and and i have been sort of quite i've always been the optimistic person where things happen because they just happen, you know, and it's like you can be walking out and you fall down the stairs, you know, nobody bloody knows. It just happens. Um, and this is just another thing, you know, it's, it can be why uh, kids are deaf or blind or whatever it might be. It's just that's, that's just what happened at that time, um, you know, and that's what happens with kids or that just what happens with life in terms of uh, the direction you go or the choices that you make. Um, I'm a massive fan of choices. You know, you choose to drink and drive you'll kill yourself you know you choose to to get onto drugs or whatever that's what you know you can go down a deep alleyway um but if you choose to do different things um ultimately they will take you to where you want to go and to the happiness that you can find i really i love that eric and i and i'm i'm very respectful that you are a very busy man so i won't <laughs> hold you up much longer but i'd love for you to share with us and our audience your favorite rowing story? Oh, mate. Okay. I've got a couple of this cut. Okay. So probably the best rowing story is it's probably the moment. And I, I do talk about, it cause it's actually a race um, that I, I would say I lost my sportsmanship. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and, and I did, and I did. And I look back on it, and I'm like, oh, shit. And a lot of people talk about it, you know, and, and it keeps getting brought up every now and again. So we had the world champs here in Carapiro. So this is a sort of a two-part story. We had the world champs here at Carapiro, and we raced. We were meant to win. Um, we came down the, the racing track, and shit, we're behind. Shit, we're still behind at the 1,000. Man, we're three-quarters of a link down at the 500 to go. And Hamish told me afterwards, he goes, about 400 metres to go, which is just before I made the call to, like, got to hit top speed. Um, he was basically writing his um, obituary to the media in his head. He was like, man, what am I going to say to the media when they go, oh, you know, the British beat you today? And I was like, oh, shit. So, like, this <laughs> – I, I afterwards I like shit, but the fact was that we hit the line, um, we hit like three hundred meters to go, we hit top speed and we won by like a foot, and it was the closest race we ever had in the whole time we ever raced the pier, and we nearly got it screwed up on our home water, when we should have been like firing on all hundred cylinders, but these guys came with their A game and nearly like took us off of their head. Um, it was an amazing thing to happen. So. That's one of my most memorable. So if you talk about stories, that's probably most my memorable moment. But the other one was after that race, the first time we met the British again, and you're talking the top two guys in the British program, the ones getting all the money, the top and the testing, everything. And Great Britain is like number one in the world for rowing. Hmm. And we keep beating them. And so we turn up to this Lucerne regatta and the media just comes at you going, oh, yeah, the British are going to beat you. They've been going so fast. Their training times are better than ever. And you're just like, man, I, this is motivating me to like destroy them. And so basically <laughs> the commentator was coming up to us going, oh, Penani's going, and I said, I'm going to fucking smash them. Like it was, it was like that. And so we raced the race. We came out in front and I watched the race afterwards on commentary and I still watch it now. And the commentator's like, you know, I'm pretty sure the British are going to lead um, and it's going to be really close, you know, like this. And then, um, he said, they'll believe by the 500. And we were like three quarters of a length in front of them by the 500. He goes, this is not how the British should be racing, you know, and he was giving it all. So we raced and we just kept the hammer down as hard as we could all the way to the line. We went through the line and we were about seven and a half seconds, like the biggest victory we've ever put over these guys. So we crossed the finish line and I pulled out the imaginary binoculars like this going like, where are you? And of course, and so people, there's photos everywhere of me just doing this on every rowing forum around the world, just like Murray giving the binoculars. And it was like, oh shit. Like it was so funny because of what I did, but I felt so bad about it afterwards. And of course, when the commentator like is doing it and we watch the like the rowing like in a couple of days later, um, there he goes, Oh, there's Murray, all the talk that all the media's been giving you. So he knew exactly what I was doing, but it's just like the probably the it's a funny story, but I just always look back on it going, man, your sportsmanship was right on the line there, buddy. Even though it was tongue-in-cheek, it was still like quite arrogant, and it was just something that we never were. But, yeah, mate, apart from that, there's not too many like gruesome party-out stories because we never actually went out and did too much <laughs> overseas, eh? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, I, I would say, given what's gone on in world sport over the last few years, I would say that's pretty vanilla and – very acceptable in my humble opinion. You certainly didn't have any sandpaper in your pocket. Yeah, there we go. There you so, go. Um, and what's what's next for Eric Murray? What's happening in your world right now and your five-year plan? Oh, mate, five-year plan. I'm uh, going to finish the renovation on my place. 
um, that's been keeping me busy. Uh, I work business development with Concept Two, so we've uh, mate, we've been going crazy with like COVID and and everything. Uh, and then on the side of that, I work with an app development company called Asensei, and so we work on like a coaching program that you can use on your own machine. Uh, and then I'm patron for Autism New Zealand, and then. I've still been working a little bit with like the ANZ on their Olympic sponsorship and bits and pieces. Then I've got my boy. Um, <laughs> uh, and so always doing stuff with him, school, bits and pieces, trying to play a bit of golf. So yeah, everything's actually just there in terms of where I want to be with my place. Bloody enjoying renovating. Love it. I did six months worth of renovations and bloody um, and four and uh, six months worth of renovations in four weeks over lockdown level four here, eh? <laughs> While everybody went to that, while everybody went to the supermarkets to buy like loo paper, I went straight to uh, Mitre Ten and just bought up like thousands of dollars worth of timber and all the paint I could carry, just literally because I knew that we were going to be doing nothing. And then of course everybody's seen it at home, going, "I've got nothing to do," and we're coming into like our late summer autumn, um, and everyone's just like, "Shit, I should have bought some paint." should have done something with the inside of the house. And so they're sitting around with their kids like going stir crazy because they're not allowed to go anywhere. Um, and here's me like <laughs> sawing out walls, ripping off wallpaper, painting, going hard. And it was so much fun. I actually really enjoyed my time. So um, that's going to be a bit going forward. And yeah, just general life, man. Just doing the best you can. Well, this this has been a real pleasant surprise, uh, Erica. I didn't know a lot about you before I was uh introduced by a couple of people and and i am incredibly motivated by your energy and your optimistic nature your enthusiasm for life and your just go at it i really fucking love it and i'm gonna go run some more tomorrow morning i um, do it and uh just wanted to thank you for your time today ladies and gentlemen eric murray it's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com